Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember. It's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in Hi everyone, this is Marty Hurstein. I'm the director at Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Let me give a big shout out to John Pielli of The Past Ball. Today he's going to be recording his 100th episode on MTR Radio. Keep up the great work, John. Hey, welcome aboard. John Pielli here and I'm joined by the executive producer of MTR Radio and a host of the MTR Morning Show, which can be heard right here on MTR Radio, Monday through Friday, 10 to 11, and of course, Garden State Radio, which could also be heard from 12 to 2 on Saturdays here on MTR Radio. And of course, that's James Flippin. James, what's going on, man? What's up, John? Uh, thanks for having me on, man. Honored to be here for part of episode 100. Now, I tell you, man, 100 episodes, man, it's kind of gone by a little, you know, a little too quick here, but... Obviously, you've had a you've had an integral part of this show, particularly towards the beginning. Uh, you know, do, doing a couple spots here, talking a little baseball, and uh, listen, uh, you know, I want to thank you for uh, for being part of this thing, man. Hey, listen, man, no problem. Now all you got to do is get above the Mendoza line. <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm sitting right now. I'm under it, man. <laughs> just just like just like Ike Davis. Exactly. Your 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 uh, your your number of episodes is eerily reminiscent of a random day in May when you might check Ike Davis's. Uh, batting average yeah that's probably around the career batting average of uh, mike nickius <laughs> yeah mike nickius well listen you know hopefully uh the mets headed in better direction with their catching with the combination of travis darno and uh juan centeno the first guy to ever throw out billy hamilton How yeah about that? yeah it was funny man i tweeted about that the other day dude it's something that obviously the the, the kick kind of add to his resume because there will never be a first person to ever throw out billy hamilton it looked like you know, the guy looks like Willie Mays Hayes out there, but just his ability to run, man. And 
I'll tell you, man, if this guy can hit a little bit, and you know, I don't mean to get off the Mets for a second, but if Billy Hamilton could hit about 250 as a major league hitter, dude, he could he could be a beast, dude. The guy could steal probably 150 bases in a season. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the most important thing would be if he could learn to sort of get on base consistently, which we know is a skill and is something that, you know, either you could get better at or potentially you're just kind of naturally inherently good at or whatever it may be. But Billy Hamilton, if nothing else this year, if and I'm hoping not because I'm a Pirates guy, if the Reds get past this play in wildcard game, Billy Hamilton could be a major weapon on the bench there for Dusty Baker because you talk about a guy who could basically come in and turn a single into a into a double in the old cliche sense that's billy hamilton no absolutely man it kind of makes you think of you know the old-time baseball fans will think of like a herb washington from like the oakland athletics the track and field star and knew nothing about baseball it was brought in just to be a pinch runner and i don't think the guy ever got a major league at bat but played in like about 150 games just as a pinch runner he got picked off in a in a very very important game i think it was a world series game against the dodgers in 74 Mike Marshall picked him off because he just had no idea what he was doing leading off a of first base. So obviously you have to have some baseball sense to go with that ridiculous speed, and hopefully it's uh, something no, that. No, no question. But I mean, you know, for me, like the the most important, uh, the most memorable pinch runner that I that in my lifetime, and obviously local fans will remember it with the New York connection, is Dave Roberts for the Red Sox in 2004. He got on, uh, you know, so or Bill Muller, I guess it was that eventually singled him in, but. Uh, he, he was able to basically steal second when you knew that that's what he was going to do against the Yankees there in 2004. You knew he was going to steal, and he was able to get it, and obviously the rest is history. But, you know, that can definitely be a weapon. So, anyway, Juan Centeno, Travis Darno. I'm hoping that the Mets catching position can be league average at best, uh, no, you know, think, or at worst, I should say. No, I think it will be. And i tell you one thing I was going over today in my blog. I was going over the Mets 40-man roster, and, you know, the, the Mets have 48 players under 40-man roster, which counts the eight players that are currently on a 60-day DL. A lot of teams do that as we get into September so they can bring other players up. You factor in the fact that the Mets have eight free agents. Uh, it puts their roster at exactly 40. So if you're, if you're a New York Mets fan and you expect the team to go out there and make free agent moves and trades, obviously there's a handful of players that got to come off this roster. Um, you, from your perspective, anybody in your mind that you see playing right there that the Mets need to just simply cut off the 40-man roster? Uh, let's see. Thinking about it in terms of people that you're just going to cut, I mean, um, it's it's tough. I'd have to I'd have to get it up in front of me and then get back. Uh, if I go to if I go to uh, JohnPielli.com, I can get that right Absol there. Absolutely. But I tell you, man, like like my my question isn't necessarily players. Um, I think some people would want to see impact players removed off this roster, and this is kind well, of what I'm getting at. I'd like a Ike Davis, a Lucas Duda, somebody to that level. Obviously, I'm not going to go that far and you know say that these players need to be just simply cut, but I, I think you can make a point why some people would want to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I don't have any any objection really to the notion that this team has to cut some guys from uh, from the 40-man roster in the, in the interest of getting better. Now, whether or not that's people being moved outright or if that's trades that might happen, I mean, I think you have to look at it from the perspective of uh, what do the Mets have that is potentially a piece that could be worth trading. For example, uh, D Daniel Murphy is definitely a guy who, in the right situation, could attract interest from certain teams on the trade market. He plays second base, a position that 
typically doesn't get a lot of offensive production in this day and age. Obviously, a guy like Robinson Cano is hitting the free agent market this offseason, and people will be interested in seeing what happens with him and his quest for a $300 million contract, but for much cheaper and for not quite the same offensive production. But check it out. Daniel Murphy, definitely a guy who's in the top 10 in terms of production at second base. Uh, you know, he's a guy who could potentially net something in the trade market this offseason for the Mets. Uh, Lucas Duda, I don't think it's the craziest thing in the world to imagine that he might bring you back something, nothing great. But, I mean, he's a guy who in the American League uh, has shown that, you know, if he's playing first base or if he's DHing and he's not sort of, you know, freaked out by the notion of playing the outfield, which, by the way, we were all freaked out at the same time for him by the notion of him playing the outfield. There was nothing more awkward than watching Lucas Duda play the outfield. It was worse than Adam Dunn, even. No, um, Daniel you know, Murphy in the outfield is better than Lucas Duda Well, in the that, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, oh, oh, you're saying he's better. Yeah, you might be right. <laughs> you might be right, to be honest with you. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, the, the, the Lucas Duda thing, maybe just for his bat, if nothing else. Um, I've, I've heard that they want to hold on to Eric Young because um, they like his speed element. So, you know, that's potentially even more concerning for a guy like Daniel Murphy in terms of getting traded. Uh, you know, other than that, I, I don't know that they have a whole lot. Uh, Dylan G, definitely. Dylan G is definitely a guy who I think could command a, an interesting return in the trade market. Okay. They've got some arms in, in AAA, like a Rafael Montero. Some guys like him better than others. Um, you know, most people consider a guy like Syndergaard to be untouchable. But, you know, again, no one is, depending on what the prospect or uh, player is that's coming back the other way. So, you know, the Mets definitely have some things that they can do. And, and Sandy Alderson has said he's, he's going to be aggressive. But for me, I, I'm mostly interested in is the trade market going to open up for somebody at shortstop like a Troy Tulowitzki or is um, something going to open up in one of the corner outfield positions? Because other than that, I'm inclined to just sort of pick and choose with mid-level free agents and see if our pitching staff can't make us competitive next year. No, very true, man. This is the Pass Ball Show. John Pielli here with James Flippin celebrating the 100th episode of the Pass Ball Show. Now, you talk about Tulowitzki for a second, and, I, and here's, here's where I have a problem with people kind of being like overly aggressive, expecting the Mets to be in the mix for a Troy Tulowitzki. You're, two things are going to have to happen here. Number one, what you're going to have to give up is something in regards to a player or two on this team that you think is going to help you for the future. In, in other words, you're not necessarily going to get Troy Tulowitzki for a couple mid-level guys and perhaps a Brandon Nimmo. And number two, you have to pay Troy Tulowitzki the remainder of his contract, which takes you all the way until the year 2020. I think Tulowitzki on paper looks perfect. He would be the perfect fit, star player to put right in the middle of the order, an all-star shortstop, may arguably the best in the game right now. But I, I just don't think it's very feasible, James. Well, I can understand why you say that. I think the interesting thing about a Troy Tulowitzki is he might be exactly the type of guy that the Mets, in fact, should go after. And I'll tell you why. The Rockies are in a situation right now where they don't want to be paying that contract. They're in the middle of their own little rebuild right now. Troy Tulowitzki does have a ton of money left on that deal. I, I can't dispute that. I can't question that. Uh, I was just looking at it earlier. I think it's honestly like seven years left or something like yeah, that. Yeah, seven years and like 150 almost or something like that. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a lot of money. It's a ton of money. But for that reason, I think it's possible that the Mets are in a position to maybe not have to give up quite as much in terms of premium talent if they eat all of that contract and of course the Mets aren't going to want to do that you know they're sort of penny pinching in their own right recently but they have sort of made waves here and put some smoke signals out there that they might be more interested in picking up a 
quote unquote bad contract than going out there and trying to sign somebody on the free agent market. And Troy Tulowitzki, listen, you know, th there's worse guys that you could roll the dice with because we know what he's like at his peak. The guy can't stay healthy, and it's maddening from a Rockies fan perspective, but we know what he's like at his peak. There isn't a guy um, in Major League Baseball, by and large, right now that can replicate his numbers at shortstop if healthy. You know, that's the big question. And, uh, you know, it, it would be a major upgrade for the Mets, and it would also really inject some life into the fan base. But um, I, I think that if, if you're talking about a prospect package that might include a Rafael Montero, and if it's a trade that's front-lined by Dylan G, um, and then you mix somebody else in there, I, you know, I don't know. That might end up being enough. And, and then maybe a Travis Darno. You know, it's possible that could end up being enough for a Troy Tulowitzki because of the fact that he's got so much money left on that deal. Now, do you, do you consider trading Wheeler in a deal like this? Uh, I really wouldn't, I'll be honest with you, John, because I, I think that the way uh, baseball is these days, I'd rather take my shot acquiring position players in free agency and, you know, um, uh, players that are going to play the, the field and play every day in free agency than try to go the pitcher route via free agency. So I'm going to hold on to those young pitchers as long as I can through their arbitration years, then try to buy out their arbitration years. You know, these guys are, are basically ticking time bombs when it comes to, uh, you know, elbow or shoulder surgery anyway. So I don't want to, you know, roll the dice on the back end of their career. I'd rather roll with these guys on the front end. So no, Wheeler and Harvey... And, you know, obviously, Harvey, we hope for the best. He's apparently going to pitch in the Arizona Fall League. Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to try to go with those guys and, and see if I can't make a run at it. And obviously, what everybody's trying to do is sort of replicate the Tampa Bay Rays, San Francisco Giants uh, model, which is just young arms, young arms, young arms. And it's really the Atlanta Braves strategy for many, many years also. So, you know, it's all about the young arms, in my opinion. No, I agree, James. And uh, one thing I'm just going to hit up before you go, a player that's comparable as far as contract to Troy Tulowitzki that I would have some interest in. And in my opinion, if I was the New York Mets, I would consider it because I think the demand for him may be less than even a Tulowitzki would be Matt Kemp. What is your opinion about perhaps if the Mets were to bring in Matt Kemp to play center field? Well, another guy with the injury concerns, and he just got lost for the entire uh, postseason, didn't yes. he, on Sunday? So I look at it like this, his, his value is down a little bit. Sandy Alderson, the whole money ball thing, get a, get a player, though a different type of player that's making a lot of money, but you may, you may have to give up a considerable amount less for a guy that has a huge upside and could be a potential you know, a, you know, MVP candidate in the National League. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, listen, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by the idea. I love Matt Kemp as a player, obviously. Like we said, he's, he's the quintessential can he stay healthy guy. A lot of money on that deal also um but you know I, I look at it from this perspective the way the mets are and what they are and the resources that they have in theory uh, unless the made uh you know will ponds are really truly suffering in a huge way from the madoff uh situation and the fallout from and and you know the real estate investments and maybe they are who who really knows what goes on behind closed doors I think they should go out and get both of those guys. I think they should trade for Tulowitzki and Kemp. Because you know what? They've got so many arms in their system right now 
and so little money on their payroll that they can afford to absorb both those contracts. And if they're serious about taking this thing in the right direction and they can do that without giving up Wheeler, without giving up Syndergaard and without giving up Harvey, they absolutely should. So, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm ready to roll the dice because I've had enough of this mediocre baseball stuff and watching these AAA teams. I mean, my parents went to the game on Sunday, John, the, the Mike Piazza Hall of Fame game. They bought they bought tickets. They went out there. They loved it. They, they had a great time. They wore their Mike Piazza shirts. And my mom said, you know, she called me after and she said, you know, it almost makes you forget that we stink. And she was like, you know, there was a time when it was exciting to be a Mets fan. There was a time when there were home runs and when there were big hits and when this, that, the other thing. And, you know, the Mets got to figure out a way to get back there because, you know, the entertainment dollars fleeting. You know, the, the Yankees are sort of in, in a position maybe where they're going to go through a tough time here. Uh, you know, nobody wins championships in New York anymore. So, you know, let's let's figure it out here. Let, let's get something going. Let's get the Mets competitive again. And I, I'm all for it. I'm all for going out and getting a Tulowitzki. I'm all for getting a, a Kemp. I'd love to see him bring back Reyes. Don't think it's going to happen, but I would love it. Nah, so, absolutely, you know, man. We'll, we'll see. They've got some options here, man. They can definitely make some trades. They've got a lot of arms in their system that people like. Um, you know, I, they don't have a lot of position prospects, so they're going to have to try to pick those guys up via, you know, salary acquisition or free agency. Maybe a Sin Suchu. We'll see about that. Um, he's probably going to be priced out of their plans, but maybe not. So we'll see. You know, taking on a bad contract, so to speak, might be their best option. Now, definitely, man. And listen, before you, before I let you go, I'm going to share a little quick story, man. I know you got to go, but uh, 2008, last game at City at uh, Shea Stadium. Obviously, the Mets were in a in a pennant race down to the last day. They ended up uh, losing a couple games to the Florida Marlins. Yeah, they I was I, I was at the game the day before that. I was at Johan Santana's uh, pitch. You know, effort the day before that. Yeah, so I was at I was at that game, the last game. Okay. And obviously, it was the last day of Shea Stadium. They had the ceremonies and stuff afterwards. Yep. As soon as the Mets lost, dude, I'm pissed off. Obviously, you know, yeah, whatever, yeah. you know, thirty five thousand people there were pissed off. But yep. I'm, I'm there with my mom, and, and I'm like, I kind of want to go home. My mother's like, why don't we just stay for the ceremony? And to be honest with you, watching that whole ceremony kind of made me think and forget that the Mets just lost. Pretty similar to what you said about you know your, your mom going to going to City Field and you know watching you know the Piazza thing. I, I think sometimes you get a little you know you know nostalgic into the history and stuff and everything that's going on, and you start thinking about Shea Stadium. They bring back Doc Gooden and the Strawberry, and Willie Mays is there. And, all of a sudden, you just uh, you, you start to forget that the Mets just choked away their second consecutive season. And I'll, I'll never forget that because I drove home in a happier mood than I would have been if, if I just left after the third out of that game. Well, I'll tell you this much, John. This is something I never thought I'd say many, many years ago. But when I think of Shea Stadium at this point, it's nothing but excitement, happiness. Everything else has been blocked out conveniently. It's just nothing but like that, that gleaming, big Shea, blue you know, half-enclosed stadium that I remember so well. When I think of City Field, misery, pure misery. Yeah, so it's time. It's time now that the Mets uh, start to build a history there, so we can start talking about the history of City Field. Which, let's be honest, other than the Johan Santana no-hitter, has not existed since that stadium's come up. But listen, it James, doesn't. It just doesn't feel like you know. It feels like some sort of like practice stadium we're playing in. You know what I mean? It's 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 foreign. It's strange. It's it. I don't know. There's something about and, and you know what? It, it's reflected in the fact that they've played like crap there pretty much since they began. I mean, they, they had a losing record there this year, obviously, because they actually played 500 ball on the road, I think. Which was amazing. And, yeah. And they just stink at home. They're ten. But you know what? There's a very 
basic baseball reason for that, and I'll leave you with this, John. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, they don't hit any home runs. The Mets have no power, and if you play in a big ballpark like that in this day and age, I'm sorry. There's too much video. There's too much good pitching. There's too much relief. There's too much good defense. You're not going to base hit your way to victories in a ballpark like City Field. you got to hit home runs, so they got to get some power. It's about time. Now, Chicks dig the long ball, too, and so does, See, so does Sandy that, Alderson. Um, that's what I'm talking about. Greg Maddox and, and uh, was it Glavin? They know it. Yeah, absolutely. Man. All right, James, listen, I want to thank you for having some time, man, and you know, obviously keep up the good work with the MTR Morning Show and Garden State Radio, and I'll definitely talk to you soon. Thanks, John. Congratulations on episode 100, and, uh, yeah, keep it rocking on uh, you know the pass ball. Hey, thanks. Lots more stuff to get into. We're going to take our first break of this show. We'll be back with a lot more after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is a family. Through one of the toughest years in my life, my ACS family stood beside me. My teachers were loving and supportive, and my friends shined God's love in different ways to make each day brighter. Atlanta Christian has a nurturing academic environment and is a second home to me. I am thankful for the school and family with which God has blessed me. Join us for Open House every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7, 24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. <laughs> M-T-R. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you guys are enjoying number 100, the 100th episode on PBS right here on MTR Radio. What I'm going to do is kind of play a little uh, montage of a couple of the interviews I've done. i got another one ready to play in the second hour. But here's a series of some interviews that I've done. Hopefully you guys enjoy these little clips here. Tessie is the royal root is rally cry. Tessie is the tune they always We're going to welcome to the program Brett Boone, who's been on our program before. And now listen, I, I want to get into this a little bit and share what you, you're interested in sharing. Unfortunately, the, okay. time, you know, the time that you played was really kind of taken over by the steroid era. You look at a lot of the players, the big-time players were using and stuff. 
Do you, in your opinion, do you think this is something that's been a little overstated, or was it something that you felt prevalent in a lot of places that you played? Uh, I, I definitely think it was overstated. I definitely think it was in the game. Um, but I definitely think, you know, I see everything that's happening in sports now, and, and baseball, you know, I'm very proud of them. They've cleaned the game up about as, as good as you can. I, I know going through, you know, I was still in the game when they started this rigorous testing program, and I know it's about as tough as it gets. You know, it's kind of like Olympic testing. This is John Pialli. I'm here with former Major League player, general manager, and the vice president of on-field discipline for Major League Baseball, Bob Watson. Yeah, that takes us into your time in, in New York as a general manager, vice president of baseball operations for the New York Yankees. Uh, you know, I, I always got to ask this, you know, how was it like do, doing this for the boss? I mean, you know, here, here's the guy that obviously is known at, throughout Major League Baseball as probably one of the, the one of the most demanding owners you're ever going to come across. You know, it's it's win or else. Was, how was your perception of having the opportunity to work for the boss in that capacity? I'm delighted and honestly excited to have in studio with me uh, former MLB outfielder Billy Sample. Billy, how you doing, buddy? Thanks for joining the show today. Well, thanks, John. Good to be here. We want to promote your movie a little bit. We want to get it out there. We want to make sure that people know really all the hard work and stuff that you've done to make this movie into what it is. Oh, thanks, John. You didn't want to talk about that 0 for 37 I took in double-A ball? <laughs> well, actually, we're going to get to that in a oh, little bit. Oh, <laughs> we'll, should have brought it up. <laughs> we're goodness. definitely going to hit up on that for a little bit. But um, <laughs> let's, let's, let's take a couple minutes, Billy, and uh, you know, Ian, if you want to chime in, let's talk about the process of the movie. It's called Reunion 108. And, you know, 108 because of the 108 stitches in a baseball. Smart, wasn't I? Yeah. That, Nobody that, else could figure that out other than you. That's <laughs> John Piali. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Al Roboski. Now, you know, talking about psyching out, you obviously, you know, you were known as the man Hungarian. You got that a whole little intimidation thing that you did before, uh, before, you, before you came into the game, before you started pitching. Tell us a little bit about how that originated and really what uh, what motivated you to want to to want to kind of have that persona. The man Hungarian was six foot eight, two hundred ninety-two pounds, the ugliest thing in the world, in my mind. But my case star joking was six foot eight, two hundred ninety-two pounds, and ugly. He also was a Hall of Famer with 475 home runs. The way I wanted to get him out was I wanted to bust him inside, tie him up, and throw the ball right up on his hands. And, uh, and I remember he got the ball out over the plate. He's going to hit you know, home run number 476. If I got the ball too far inside, I might hit him, might make it bad. And if he charged him out, I was going to hurt him. And here we go. We're going to keep it going by playing an interview I recorded this past week with former Major League pitcher Brian DuBois. And Brian pitched for the Tigers for a couple years in the majors in 89 and 90. What's very significant about him, he's known very much for a, hit, for a dominating pickoff move. He had as a left-hand pitcher, but also went 0-4 in the 1989 season, but finished with a 175 ERA, which certainly didn't do him justice. So hopefully you guys enjoyed his spot with Brian DuBois. And this is John Pialli here, a former Major League pitcher, Brian DuBois. Brian, what's going on, man? 
Oh, not a whole lot. Just uh, living back in the Midwest in Illinois and uh, going to be... Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. So, you know, let's, let's, let's start out by getting in and out a little bit. Tell us what you're doing, what the coaching, and, you know, how it's been making a transition to uh, to being a coach. Well, this is my first year uh, as a pitching coach. I uh, was just named that uh, a few weeks ago, and um, I did some college collegiate summer league team this year, and it was different, you know, helping out kids and stuff like that, where I was always getting the instruction from other coaches and stuff like that. But uh, it's pretty, you know, stuff that, you know, I've been out of the game for a while. So little things here and there coming back to me. And I'm remembering some stuff that, oh, wait a minute, I remember that. So, you know, it just, you know, it just takes time. So it's, it's all coming back. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, as you're, as you're watching young pitchers and, you know, young young kids that are trying, you know, you know, trying the best they can, developing their technique and stuff, I'm sure you could kind of picture, your, you know, a, a young you kind of in there. Uh, is there is there anything that you take out of what you've learned that you, you stress as kind of an importance when you're working with these pitchers? Yeah, I, I, I try to explain to them, you know, it's just really, if this is really what you want, you know, go all out for it. I see a lot of kids, you know, that nowadays, now like when I played, they just go about themselves, and, you know, they, they're, they're in a different sports, which I was too, but they're not, they don't have goals set in mind for themselves. So, you know, they're going to go home and play video games and stuff like that. Whereas, when I was a young boy, I go out in my backyard and throw the ball. You know, or it was basketball, we play basketball, first football, we play football. So we were always outside doing something. Kids nowadays seem. Now, this is the Midwest. Kids nowadays seem like they're always, they don't, you know, they don't go outside and say, you know, they're open. So I, I just, sometimes I don't understand that. Now, I tell you, it's a big change, and uh, you hit on something really important now. A lot of a lot of kids growing up have access to technology and stuff, and there's so many so many more means to kind of keep uh, keep a child in a house now, as opposed to when you grow up, when I grew up. And obviously, it's a big it's a big difference. And you know, I think the most important thing you can really stress is that listen, like you said, if you love if you if you love the game, if this is what you want to do, you got to do it more often. Do it a little more often than just showing up for practice and games, right? Uh, you know, when, when we're down tracks and stuff, we still go home and we you know, take up game with the neighborhood kids and stuff like that. And we go out there and we did that to hone our skills. We went out there. You know, whoever we pick, we want to pick the other team. And that's, we wanted to win all times. No matter what sport it was, you know, we wanted to be competitive with everything we did. And now we're talking, you know, 35, you know, 30 years ago. So, uh, yeah, kids nowadays is down to the whole thing of like the uh, the watch on your left hand man that's like that's become obsolete now <laughs> yeah everybody's got the time on their phone they know you know they, they pretty much run their lives by it, by it which uh, which i which i think is, is kind of you know it's good and it's bad i mean i think people are able to uh educate themselves a little better with this stuff but at the same time it keeps away from the the hands-on activities that we you know we could all relate to as kids oh uh, definitely uh you know, I don't know what like I, uh, I don't know what I do about my uh, cell phone, but I've learned a lot, you know, with computers and stuff like that. So I've basically learned from all this technology, but at the same time, you know, I I still gotta go outside and you know mow the grass or do something outside because you know you, you're not gonna be young forever. So 
two boys. My youngest boy, you know, he gets so we don't I see all the video games, go outside, do what you want outside, just go outside. And I'd see him out there eating and practicing. So I'm just, you know, I smile and I chop I'm like, okay, that's what I used to do, good, keep going. <laughs> Yeah, and we'll see a John Pielli here with Brian DuBois. Now, you know, you were drafted in uh, 1985 in the fourth round by the Baltimore Orioles. Tell us, tell us a little bit about how you got started, um, you know, maybe your, a little bit of your trail through the minors and up until uh, you made your major league debut with the Tigers. Uh, I found out I got drafted um, right after a high school break with Rick Custer. Um, we won the state championship, and they posted on the scoreboard that I was drafted by Baltimore. And I was, you know, I, I, I don't recall Baltimore ever seeing me, you know, play. I thought it was, you know, like Phillies or the Pittsburgh Pirates or something like that, because they've always, you know, they always came around. So when I got drafted, it wasn't like a month or two later, I went to play flying to Bluefield, West Virginia. And it was a big culture shock for me going to the mountains from, uh, you know, Midwest where it's easily flat. And just, um, you know, I thought I was the ace of everything, you know, staff in high school and stuff. And when I got to professional baseball, well, every kid coming out of state, they, you know, ace of their team. So it was, it was a big shock for me. But then, right there, you know, I, I learned that I had to learn how to pitch. I could just try to blow an 85, 87 mile an hour fastball by somebody because it's not high school anymore. Not very true. And I thought you make it through the system with the Baltimore Orioles. You end up being traded in uh, 1989 for Keith Moreland. You end up going over to the Tigers. You make your debut that year. And you actually, you actually have a pretty good run. And, you know, the end of the 1989 season, you finish to a 175 ERA. But you finish the season 0-4 because the Tiger team you're, you're playing for wasn't really that good. Tell us a little bit about, you know, making it to the majors in 1985 and, you know, what it, what it, what it felt like to kind of get a couple starts under your belt. Well, um, first I was shocked they got traded. I, I, I was, this, this is twice it's going to happen right now. Um, I was supposed to pitch the following day with Rochester Red Wings to play for the uh, Orioles then. And I get a call from our manager at Beijing who passed away. And he said, uh, you know, you're not going to pitch tomorrow. You got traded in Baltimore or Detroit Tigers for Keith Moreland. And my roommate at the time was Kurt Shelley. So he was all pumped up. I was pretty much out of security in the organization. This is like, I've been with Baltimore for four, four and a half years. It's like, oh, so I go to Detroit. I think it's very good for them. And uh, General Rockefeller was our manager then. And we had a doubleheader going on. And the second game, I was supposed to pitch. And he just looked at me and said, by the way, you're not pitching. So the next game, I'm like, oh, and I said, why? Why, why, am I, why am I not pitching? He goes, I don't know. You're going up to the big leagues. Get up there. And I said, am I pitching? I started to relieve And then he just said, I don't know. Just get up there and find out. So I was all excited. Of course, until I got there, it was a big, that was a big change. No, absolutely. Once again, John Pielli here with Brian DuBois. And, of course, you, know, you had a chance. You know, you had, you had a couple of good starts. You know, you were uh, beating up a little bit by your defense. You gave up seven unearned runs, which led to, to the losses in those games. But I'm sure coming out of that season, you probably had to feel pretty good, right? Oh, I, I felt really good. But, um, you know, going forward to 1.75 was, you know, it was a little misleading because because of how they scored or whatever, you know, yeah, okay, so-and-so made it there. What's the next bad You might have a double and score that round. So the ERA was a little misleading, but I felt like my first year I held my own, and 
I was looking forward to coming back and actually starting off a hopefully a long visually career. Man, of course, you know, you end up pitching for the Tigers in 1990 and uh, spent some time in the minors in 91. And what happened after that? You got you got hurt? You, you missed the 1992 season, right? Yes, I, I, I think I missed 91 and 92. I had okay. two Tommy John surgeries. The first one didn't take. And uh, I kind of tore that uh, ulnar collateral ligament again. And so I actually and I was back with Baltimore by, the, by then. Um, and um, so I missed two full years. And um, I came back with Baltimore, um, went to big major league camp, and uh, I was like, I believe I was the last cut in, in the big leagues, and Johnny Oates was our manager at the time, and he said, you know, the first one he gets called up will be you, we're going to send you back down, you can start again, and I went down there, I just, I pretty much stunk up the whole park, and, and, making, you know, it was what I was making for a minor leaguer. Yeah, I'll tell you, one thing that stands out about you, Brian, was you, you were known for having a very good pickoff move, and you were able to, uh, you know, kind of, kind of uh, you know, curtail that in your delivery and be able to uh, pick off guys at first base. What, what do you think was the biggest key to, uh, to being able to master that? I, I think it had a lot to do with my size. Um, I short on the ball first, and somehow I could, I could uh, I figure out a little bit, the ball is hard to first if I did the home. So I could, you know, if I can get in the pause for a second, I could, you know, I, I can get him laying or just standing there. And, and I've learned, I learned that in all, you know, in high school. And then uh, it just gradually got better and better. And it actually it helped me out a great deal. And I try to explain to these kids that I do help out here and get uh, pitching lessons. A pickoff move will lower your ERA big time. No, very true, man. And I'll tell you, to have that ability to go out there and, you know, maybe get that little bit of a pause in your delivery to get that base runner, you know, kind of lean in or pause, like you said, uh, obviously uh, gives you the opportunity to get more people out than just, you know, just the batters at the plate. So I'm sure that's sure that's something that you you kind of take with you as an asset, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's hard for me to keep a taller kid say lefty that same move because we're, we're totally different builds and we're, you know, they might be long and lengthy, length, you know what I'm trying to say there. Um, and they can't, they can't short on the ball like they did. So it's really hard for me to try to explain it to these taller kids how to do it. They give me short, stocky, lefty. I can help them out pretty good. Uh, very true. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Brian DeBoys. Now, you know, through, you know, 93 through 95, probably a little a little bit of a tough time for you. I know you, you know, you, you know, at, at times you pitched well. Was there any ever any point there that you really felt like you were on your way back to the majors? Yeah, I think I released in Baltimore. Um, the Phillies picked me up, and I, I went to double-A, and, you know, I was still kind of, I'm sure my arm has always been hauled, you know, and stuff like that. And I went to Double A. I pitched um, really well for Reading, Pennsylvania. I went 4 0. They called me up to Triple uh, A. And I became a reliever, which I've always wanted to be a starter, but, you know, it's job's a job. And I went 4 0 there, and I, I, I did really well at the, you know, the organization that they invited me to a major league camp. And uh, I believe it was 94, 95. And the year they had the lockout, so I was very disappointed about that because I thought I really had a good shot of making it. And uh, and then the year I went to AAA again as a reliever, and I didn't do very well. I decided that 
So you took a you took a chance in 1996. You pitched for Aberdeen of the Prairie League. Tell us a little bit about that experience, and you know if there's anything that you got out of that. Um, well, I at the spring training was going on. I finally get called back again, and uh, you know I I made the decision. I, I messed up on my decision. I want to play again. He said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get you on major league or uh, even on a AAA roster. So this this chap came up in the game and he's telling me about it and I'm thinking in high school I used to be a really good hitter and outfielder I'm thinking hey maybe I'll get a chance to bat you know I've been batted because most of my of my whole career pretty much was in the American uh, League systems and uh, I went there and it was pretty much like rookie ball all over again and right then and there I just and I didn't have it I don't know if it was my desire or what have you, but I just didn't have it, and I knew what I'd done there. That was what I was going to call it for, for good. All right, Brian, listen, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the program, and best of luck with everything you're doing as, uh, you know, as a pitching coach right now. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot. We're going to take our last break of this hour. We'll be back with a lot more. Passball Show, back after this. <laughs> This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. As the host of the MTR Nightcap, I like to think that I've got a decent understanding of the game of baseball and what's going on in the current season. But when I need to learn about the game's history, there is absolutely nobody I would rather speak to than John Pielli. So, John, congratulations on your 100th episode of the Pass Ball Show, and here's to many more. Welcome back, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, we're commemorating 100 episodes of the Passball Show, which really started out as a little podcast on uh, Ustream, which I was going for an hour. And really my first uh, my first interest in doing this is I wanted to incorporate my knowledge into baseball and kind of talk for about an hour. And really what, what it ended up starting to be was kind of my little rants and like, uh, you know, issues I got with the New York Mets and their organization. And you know what? It was one of those things where I say, listen, I'm not afraid to say it. You know, you may listen to a show and they may feel that they got to respect certain people in regards to stuff that they're saying. But I wanted to go out there and I wanted to say it. And you look at the evolution of the past ball show and really what it's turned into. And it went from a show that I was just going to talk about the Mets for an hour to a show that I was going to incorporate uh, opinions of bloggers, writers, and people involved in the game. And of course, you've seen it turn into the two-hour show right here on MTR Radio. And it's uh, incorporated all the interviews I've done with current and former Major League players, personalities, people associated with the game. But another very important part of the past ball show has been Bases Empty Blog. And of course, you check that out on johnpielli.com or mtrmedia.com slash John Pielli. And, I, you know, I've, I've gotten into a lot of historical articles, articles about, you know, opinions of, th- of different rules in regards to instant replay and bunting and stuff like that and the role of a manager on a team. And I've, you know, obviously gotten that opinion out. And I've written, you know, to a point where I, I've written probably about 
seven, eight hundred articles in regards to stuff going on in Major League Baseball. So if you haven't checked it out yet, Bases Empty Block, JohnPLA.com, the whole thing. But well, I'm going to go over a couple of uh, most recent articles. And one part that I got into that I thought was pretty interesting was my uh, discussion about uh, Miller Huggins and Miller Huggins' place in baseball history and he of course was the manager, the longtime manager of the New York Yankees who suddenly passed away on a date last week. It was uh, I think the 25th of September of 1929 and during that time the Yankees were in, in the midst of a pennant race when it looks like they weren't going to be able to uh, be able to win but you looked at what happened in 1928 where the Yankees had won the World Series. Of course, prior to that was the 27 Yankees, Murderers Row. Obviously, the Yankees have had other playoff appearances before that, making the World Series in 21 and 22, winning the series in 23, and getting back there in 26 when they lost to the St. Louis Cardinals. But Miller Huggins had a huge role in that. And a lot of people, including me, want to give a lot of credit to the Colonel Jacob Rupert for having his interest in the Yankee franchise as it became the New York Yankees from the New York Highlanders, and at the time was one of the laughing stocks of the American League, the newly formed American League, which had just started in 1901. And Rupert obviously had his big role in it when it came to getting better players and looking to turn his franchise around and making them the winners they ended up becoming. But a guy who on the field and making player uh, personnel decisions was Miller Huggins, who came over to the Yankees from the St. Louis Cardinals after the 1917 season, and he became the manager and the general manager. He was responsible for bringing guys in like Wally Pipp and uh, you know Dutch Leonard, Bob Shawkey, uh, guys who may not dominate in regards to the names of the New York Yankees, and are not Babe Ruth. Of course, Babe Ruth was brought in by the Colonel uh, in, a, in a sale from the Boston Red Sox for $125,000. But you looked at some of the moves that Huggins made, and he also gave a little bit of a presence behind the bench. And one of the turning points in the franchise history was a shake was a shakeup that he made during the 1925 season when Wally Pipp struggled, ended up getting hurt. You know the stories are that he had a headache or something, and this guy Lou Gehrig was put in there to play first base, and of course the rest was history. All the consecutive games later, Gehrig obviously one of the greatest players in the history of Major League Baseball. But there was also a spat that Miller Huggins had with Babe Ruth in 1925. And this may have been one of the turning points to Huggins' legacy as the manager of the New York Yankees because prior to that, it, it had been pretty well known that Huggins and Ruth didn't necessarily see eye to eye. Ruth had that presence. He wanted to be field manager. He wanted to be man a player manager because he felt like he was above that of just being a star player. And, you know, you go back to the times and the value of being a manager from a player was a lot more important than it is now. And Ruth, of course, never got the chance to manage in the major leagues. But, you know, they had a, they had a very public spat in 1925, which resulted in Miller Huggins suspending Ruth indefinitely. And what ended up happening is Ruth went to the owner, Rupert, and said, listen, you can't do this. I'm Babe Ruth. You know, this guy suspended me. Just tell him that I'm not suspended and I'll get back on the field tomorrow. And the turning point, of course, occurred when Rupert sided with Huggins. And, you know, from, a, from that point forward, uh, Ruth would end up being reinstated by Huggins eventually. And there was never any issue in regards to Babe Ruth challenging the authority of Miller Huggins. And by the time Huggins ended up uh, having to step aside in 1929 because of his health and five days later passing away, Ruth would look at Miller Huggins as a great inspiration and a big part of his life and his baseball career. 
And I, I just think that as you go in there, and obviously the Yankees have honored Miller Huggins with the monument in Yankee Stadium, which came up there before Ruth, before Lou Gehrig, and of course before all the great players that played in the history of the New York Yankee franchise. Huggins, today, to this day, still doesn't get the respect that he deserves. He is up there with a Rupert. He is up there with a Ruth in regards to the history of the New York Yankees franchise and it be going from the laughing stock that it was. And let's be honest, I think I think maybe that's understated how much of a laughing stock the New York Yankees franchise was up until Rupert and Huggins got there. And Babe Ruth, of course, made the presence on the field. But, you know, let's take a couple minutes, if you can, to just kind of uh, acknowledge Miller Huggins for what he was. And you could say Joe, Joe McCarthy, you could say Casey Stengel, you could say any of the longtime serving managers that got the Yankees World Series championships as far as having an integral role in those teams being as good as they was. But if there was no Miller Huggins, there may not be the Yankee dynasty. There may not be that Yankee dynasty of 1936 to 1939 when they won the four straight World Series championships, all the, all the series that they won under Joe McCarthy, and of course later on Casey Stengel, there's a good chance that this Yankee team may not have been able to get the players that wanted to come to New York and play for the Yankees, like the Joe DiMaggio's, like the Yogi Berra's, like even the Bill Dickey's beforehand. And you know, Miller Huggins had a huge say in it, and let's take, take a couple seconds to respect one of the greatest managers in the history of Major League Baseball. Miller Huggins. Now, keep moving on forward and Bases Empty Blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing. It got into a couple of conventional things going on. And one thing I wanted to evaluate was the season, the 2013 season, had by Toronto Blue Jays right-hand pitcher R.A. Dickey. Because I think you look at what happened with the Blue Jays this year, and of course, a very big, disappointing season, 89 losses, a far cry from where a lot of people expected the Blue Jays to be this season after they made the trade for Dickey from the Mets and, of course, Jose Reyes, Josh Johnson, Mark Burley, the big deal that they made with the Miami Marlins. But R.A. Dickey's season, let's look at it for a second because I think it's real easy to say that it just wasn't good, it wasn't a success, it was a failure. He finished the year 14-13, 421 ERA, led the AL and game started with 34. Something that can be expected. One thing you can expect about R.A. Dickey, whether he's got a transition to the American League or not, he was going to go out there and make his starts, and he did that this season. And, you know, the 14-13 record, 421 ERA, obviously it was a far cry from the 20-6, 273 season of 2012 that he had with the New York Mets. I wouldn't consider a disappointment, though. Here's what I want to get into. Total numbers, 224 and a third innings pitch, 105 runs, 71 walks, 207 hits allowed. 177 Ks go along with his 1.237 whip. Not bad, but they didn't match up to the 2012 numbers of 233 and two-thirds innings pitched to go along with 71 runs allowed, 54 walks allowed, and 192 hits allowed. He also had 230 Ks that season, a whip of 1.053. Obviously, it, it, there's no match from season to season. But one thing I do want to get into is you look at from July 31st, which was the first game at a second half, Dickey made 14 starts. And during that time, he was 8-6 and six with a 3.62 ERA as opposed to the 6-7, and seven, 4.75 ERA beforehand. In the second half, he also averaged 6.857 innings per start, 7.97 Ks per nine innings pitched, and had a whip of 1.166. Prior to the All-Star break, Dickey was averaging 6.126 innings, 
6.43 Ks per nine innings and had a whip of 1.290. The fact his Ks were up, the base runners were, were down, the innings per start were up, which made Dickey a top pitcher in the American League through the second half of the season. So I think if you want to say, hey, maybe the move to bring in Reyes and Josh Johnson and Mark Burley may not have worked out, could be better next season, I think it's almost a guarantee that R.A. Dickey will have a solid season next year and will be able to live up to the money that he's getting in his contract that he's, he's paid for the next couple of years with the Toronto Blue Jays. Guys like Brandon Morrow, guys like Burley, and of course the injured Josh Johnson were supposed to strengthen that pitching staff and kind of give them four decent starters to go out there every day. There was the wild card, Ricky Romero, who of course never amounted to anything this season. I would expect to see the Blue Jays in the offseason go out there and get themselves another starting pitcher. But they have a number one set. R.A. Dickey's going to be the ace. R.A. Dickey's going to take the ball opening day of 2014 and beyond. And if you look at these numbers this season, they might be a little misleading with the ERA and the, you know, the, the Ks that weren't up there with what he did in 2012. But he had a second half, which was very similar to what he did in 2012. He had a second half where he went out there and pitched what probably was the game that eliminated the New York Yankees from postseason contention. He pitched the game his last start of the season against the Tampa Bay Rays and put them in a position where they really had a question whether they were going to make it into the postseason this year. And of course, they obviously end up getting to the wild card play-in game by beating the Texas Rangers in a game on Monday night, which got them to the division uh, division wild card playoff. But, you know, listen, R.A. Dickey had a very good say. It was probably one of the bright spots in what was otherwise a dismal season for the Toronto Blue Jays. Here's to hoping that they get some pieces around him and Jose Reyes to get themselves more competitive for the 2014 season. But obviously, listen, John Pielli here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Want to thank everybody for tuning in for the first hour. Of course, Brian Dubois, James Flippin as well as some other guys like Marty Hurstein, the director of Connecticut School of Broadcasting, Michael Cohen, David Dove, and of course, host on the MTR Radio Network. For giving shout outs but we got one more hour to celebrate the 100th episode of the passball show right here on the mtr radio network we'll be back after this tuning in to john b ellie's basketball show 